What a joy to be here. I, I'm glad. To, uh, my wife and I, uh, this is our first time actually in um, coming to worship together with Oceanside. They planted this church two and a half years ago through CBC. And uh, as Angela was saying, we've actually had our experiences together. But what is amazing that I can't get over is that, that anything that God does, you could say anything that lasts is what Christ builds. And what a joy it is to just be part of this uh, little flock that God has kept. And he's going to, he says, he who began a good work, he will finish it. So I, I just want to pause before we begin today as we're going to be looking at a passage that narrows our focus to what Christ would have us focus on as we look at transitions to the new year. The, this is one of my uh, favorite passages that we've been actually going through in my Bible study on what it means for a church to keep its priorities lined up with Christ. It's in Colossians chapter 3. So before I begin, I just want to ask the Lord to bless this. If, and uh, maybe you guys could just join me as we bow and ask the Lord of this church to have his way today with his word. Father, we bow before you and give you thanks. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. From the Father of lights, where there's no shadow of turning. There's no shadows, Lord. You are light. There's no darkness in you, none at all. And Lord, your word is like that light. It pierces even to the deepest part of us, to the dividing of bone and marrow, it says in Hebrews, that we would be divided, that, that you would judge our hearts and our motives so that we would line ourselves up with your heart. That's our desire today as we come before you, as we've been worshiping. May we continue to worship in the hearing of your word. And may this, may my... Um, May I be reduced and decreased, and may Christ be exalted and seen and exalted through this preaching, Lord, today. That's my deepest prayer, and I pray you do that in honor of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you could turn to Colossians 3, we're going to be beginning in a passage in chapter 3, verse 12, which is actually um, climaxing a section on what it means to put off a practice of your old man and to put on the new man. When you become a Christian... Everything changes. And it's amazing that oftentimes we think of all the steps you need to do to grow. And, you know, we have New Year's resolutions. On the way to Oceanside, we were coming down on the radio, and I heard the, the new slogan is, A new year, a new you. And I thought to myself, wow, if only my, if I could do that. You know, my resolutions always turn to dust. That's my wife. I'll say to my honey, she'll say, You're, you know, she'll look at me and she'll say, you know, I said, don't worry, I'm going to start a jogging program. She goes, uh-huh. Sometimes I'll just, I just have a vision of me running three miles a day, and I could see myself, you know, this slim, young, you know, older man. <laughs> and then I get out there, and it lasts, you know, for a good couple weeks. I have to get the right shoes. I said, I have to buy these shoes because in order for my resolution to happen, I need these shoes. And so that's how I get the new tennis shoes. But then that third week arises, and reality sifts in. You know, I've got busy lives. I've got, you know, I, I don't want to get up at 5 in the morning <laughs> to run. So he, here it is. I think, what, as we're going to see in Colossians, Paul is directing uh, this letter to a church that he's very concerned that they don't get into that kind of mindset that their spiritual growth is based on willpower. 
It's sort of like the New Year's resolutions. In fact, he was concerned that they were being deceived into the wrong kind of resolutions. In other words, that you can have a spiritual growth and live on a higher plane if you add this or this. Christ was not enough. They needed something more. Maybe it was more resolve. Maybe more discipline. Maybe, maybe just a little bit more visions and spiritual uh, mysticism. He's basically warning that all the counterfeit forms of resolutions to, a, to the life that Christ has given are absolutely worthless. And he gets to chapter 2, and he ends up saying, they, these, parents, the, these matters are, have the appearance of a wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So then he gets to chapter 3, where we're going to be focusing on today. And he says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep th seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. He reminds us of the reality of who you are in Christ. Paul's message to Colossians could be summarized in a very simple way. In Christ, you have all you need. Christ, sometimes we, 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 we celebrate Christmas, we, we sing the songs of Christ's uh, deity, where he comes in, in flesh and dwells among us, Emmanuel. But in Colossians, if you remember in chapter 1, he says, this Christ who captured and took you out of darkness, this Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in him. You know, when you think about God, he is, he's in a holy category. He's completely different than creation because God not, is not like us. We have needs. We, 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 many of you probably woke up and you, 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 got, you had to get your food. Um, we have needs every day as creatures. Well, Christ belongs to a category of deity. And God has no needs, if you think about it, because he's God. In Isaiah 40, it says he needs no counselors because the universe was spun into existence by his wisdom. Christ is in that category. Colossians is reminding the church who their head is. Christ himself from eternity past was actually the, the one person who was appointed as the master craftsman of the universe. Christ is incomparably sufficient, not only because every created thing, including us today, owes its very breath to him, not only as the source of life, not only as the sustainer of life, but that Christ himself is the end goal for everything. In Colossians, it says that he was given to reconcile all things to himself. It is Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is Christ who is the head of this church. And he must have first place in all things. Paul is basically taking the focus off of the church and bringing it to their head. He must have first place in all things. Because of that, we proclaim him. Notice he ends chapter 1 in Colossians with that 
Amazing purpose statement in, in which Paul's whole mission, his whole ministry could be summed up in we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And then Colossians 2, he just goes right over into Colossians 2 and we hear the urgency of Paul as he says, I pray for you that you will not be defrauded of all the sufficiency of Christ. He's the, not only the source of life, but he's the storehouse of God's wisdom and knowledge. Where can you go when you have that place where you don't know which decision to make? God is saying, Christ, the person, your Savior, your head, in him, let me read it. He says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's, that's just mind-blowing. Because we live in a basically a society where it says, if I just have this knowledge, this knowledge, and this knowledge, then I could make my success. Then I could, I could arrive at my goal. Think about it. Think of how many people are living their lives day by day, pulsating with their own goals and their own, and their own ends, but they don't have Christ. Where are they going to end up? Wisdom takes you to the right end. A life that doesn't have Christ at its center is a life that is misdirected. And Paul is saying, don't settle for counterfeits. It's amazing. Um, I'm a sort of a coffee. Uh, in, I enjoy a good cup of coffee. And uh, in, the, in the Bay Area where we live, Pete's, you know, Pete's basically rules. And when you drink a cup of Pete's, there's, there's some kinds of Pete's that are better than others. But I came to my mom and dad. My mom and dad never drink coffee. So we're all at this family gathering. I come into the kitchen, and I say, Mom, where's the coffee? She says, oh, Greg. She's, she really wants to please us. She says, I have it ready for you in the freezer. I go, really? So she goes to the freezer, and she pulls out U-Ban. I go, U-Ban? I haven't had you ban in, in ages. I said, huh? And, I, and she's never made coffee. She has this old coffee maker from 1975. You know, it's the kind where you pull it out and it keeps dripping. So I said, okay, okay, honey, mom, I want to show you how to make a good cup of coffee. So I take the you ban. I just, I sh you know, you, you don't want to be liberal with, I mean, you don't want to be a scanty with this. You got to pour it, pour this stuff in. So I took it and I poured. And she says, don't you need a measuring cup? I said, no. No, no, no. Here's how you do this. You, you just get it so that there's a lot of coffee, you know. <laughs> Make sure it's substantive. Pour the water in, and we're all waiting for this amazing cup of U-Ban. So, I, you know, my kids, you know, will drink some coffee. So, you know, the moment came when it was ready. So we all took the cups, and it was amazingly dark. So, so we put it in. We all drink it, and everybody's just looking around like, man, what's wrong with this? And as we drink it, I go, man, this is strong. I've never tasted such strong. I mean, I am a peach man. I go, what is this U-Ban? It's incredible. And then, we've, we've, and then it suddenly came to me. It dawned upon me. Could this be instant coffee? And so I went over, and I had Cesara ran over and looked at it, and she goes, this is the instant coffee. We've put a whole... <laughs> cup of instant coffee in that thing. Anyway, that's, the, the, that's, that's an illustration of counterfeit, man. You, you know, 
Listen, Colossians 2 is basically saying, don't settle for counterfeits. Um, maybe this is a better illustration. A little girl's coming back from Sunday school, and she asks her mom. She says, Mom, the Sunday school uh, teacher, this actually gets to the heart of, I think, what Colossians is getting. And then we'll get to the passage. She says, Mom, the Sunday school teacher told something that really confused me. And the mom looked at her little girl and said, what, well, what's that? And the girl said, well, our teacher said that God is bigger than us. Is that true? And the mom said, well, of course, of course God is bigger than us, she replied. And then the girl said, but, but he said something else. He said that God lives within us. Is, is, that, is that true, mom? And the mother smiled and said, why, of course, dear, of course. If you know Christ, if you're saved, he lives within you. And then she said, well, if God is bigger than us, and he lives in us, wouldn't he show through? If God is bigger than us, and he lives inside us, wouldn't he show through? That little question actually gets to the heart of Colossians. You see, Paul's essential exhortation is, in him you've been made complete. Christ, the body, the church, is not some independent organization that isn't related to Christ. Christ dwells within the church. And in Christ, your full fullness of deity dwells in Christ. And then it says, you are full in Christ. In other words, Christ is bigger than us. And he dwells in us. So wouldn't he show through? Absolutely. You see, even if you don't feel complete, when you come to Christ, you have infinite fullness. You come to infinite fullness. Where can you go to infinite fullness? Christ, Paul is saying, if you settle for Christ and something else, Christ and 10 steps to get delivered, you are settling for a different Christ. Because when you come to Christ, you're not just given 10 steps, you're given a new heart. You're circumcised with, he says, without hands. God actually does something in you. You see, a lot of you who think that Christianity is a rearrangement of your life, you have missed the glorious Christ. He says, because we've died, not only is the debt of sin paid, but we've been raised with Christ and then not only have we been raised with Christ, it's as if Christ himself pulls us to his heart. We don't just become, you know, sort of um, models that are sort of incomplete. All of us is in Christ. We are new creatures. He says it very clearly in chapter 3. He says, And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed uh, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Notice, you're being renewed according to the image of the one who created him. That's, that's verse 10. And then he says it's a renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew. You see, we've been pulled out of darkness. But you didn't just get pulled out of darkness. Your life is not about saying no to this, this, and this. You've been transferred by grace, 
as a new creature in Christ. You are in a living exhibition of what Christ has in store for all creation. Christ's body, this is the church, is a showcase. It is designed by God to be a showcase of Christ's fullness. You remember when John writes, when Christ came, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten, full, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. You know, when you think about fullness, you take a cup. Fullness means you can't, there's nothing more you can fill. If you want grace, you go to Christ because there's fullness of grace. And if you want truth, you go to Christ because in him is fullness of truth. And it says, of his fullness, we have received grace by grace. You see, this is what's radical. He's taking the church and he's saying, don't get, count, don't get these counterfeit ideas, not only about your spiritual growth, but about what you were designed to be and do. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered me. He, he, Christ changed me. I don't live according to the old priority. Sin is no longer master. Who calls the shots in your life? Colossians is saying, beware of counterfeit forms. Counterfeit promises that will take you nowhere. Christ, when he saves the church, he saves the church and he closed the church with himself, with Christ's very um, pulse of fullness. In other words, what should, be, what should people see when they see this church, Redeemer? What should they see when they see CBC? Should they see first good preaching? No, they need to see Christ. They need to see fullness of grace and fullness of truth. Preaching is only good as a derivative of an expression of Christ. You see, when the head is in charge of the church, he is the one who dictates the church's goals the agenda, the church's priorities. And through the Spirit, Christ reveals His glory. Notice it's through the Spirit that Christ is revealing His glory through these earthen vessels, these weak earthen vessels that Christ has redeemed out of darkness. They become the powerful conduit for it to showcase, as it were, the fullness, fullness. Now here's the issue. Colossians is, is redirecting us to look at what is your, what is, how, how, is the, how is your orientation of life focused on? And he's going to say that you can't live according to your own priorities anymore. You've been saved under Christ, in Christ, and you are saved at, in his body. So look, he goes to verse 12. So he says, so, and this is where we're going to begin. I'm going to pick it up here, and we're going to look at three things that I, I, I would call these. If you want to write these on your notes, these are the three non-negotiable marks of a church that's, that's walking in tune with Christ's heart. These are three absolutely 
essential things. You can, you can lay, level up priorities and say, we're going to do this this year. We're going to you know, set up this. We're going to design this. But these are the three non-negotiables that Christ directs his church to say these are the top. And you'll notice he says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Here's the first order of business. Put on a heart. Put on a heart. What kind of heart do you put on? A heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It sounds like somebody that I know. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Isn't it incredible that out of all the places he could begin, he begins with the love of Christ? You could say, he, well, why isn't he starting off with the doctrines, doctrines of grace? Why isn't he starting out with a, a strong emphasis on, um, you know, uh, expository preaching? Why? Because as a new man... What God, what Christ wants to see in this church first and foremost is the activity, the practice of a church that actually walks in the love of Christ. In other words, if this is missing, everything is in vain. Why else do you think God places you in positions where you can't control this and that? And there's people in your lives that whether, whether you try as much as you can, it it, it makes it hard to love. Why is it that God puts these people in your life? Because this is what he's doing to magnify the fullness of Christ. He's saying, first, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You know, I wish these were all five separate little things that we could all have like Boy Scout badges. Let's have the Boy Scout badge of compassion first. And then you get that little badge. And then you get the kindness badge. No, no. He's putting us. Remember, he's saying, where's your mind? Is your, is your mind on earth where you're seeking the earth's goals? Or is your mind directed where Christ is, the all-sufficient fullness, the one who is your Savior, is your mind directed with his priorities? Listen, this is Christ. You put on Christ and you have kindness. You have compassion. You have humility. You have gentleness and patience. Go ahead and try to just put on humility today. <laughs> What's going to happen is you'll get proud of that humility. The moment you say, I'm going to be more humble. And in fact, I'm going to start by letting my spouse win the game of Scrabble. That's just in, a, that's in my little issue. But here's the thing. The moment you say that you're going to be humble is the very moment that you show that you are not humble. I mean, we don't have much to go humble to. I mean, where, where are we coming from? But Jesus in Philippians says, Have this mind which was in Christ, who though equal with God, did not consider equality with a God, a, a reputa his reputation to be grasped, but he emptied himself, becoming, he said, a servant. And then this is, this is the issue. Your first priority is to, is to say, Christ, guard me from letting my heart direct me to the things that the world is saying is most important. Set your minds on things where Christ is, and the first thing you do is you put on his 
mind, his heart. The word heart there represents the control center of your life. And, he, and he, it's interesting, he, he, you'll notice the, 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 this, the, this, these garments that you're wearing are uh, stressed by two actions that are to be regular. Notice, he says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. Interesting. The two actions that showcase that you've placed your heart of compassion, kindness, humility, long-suffering, and gentleness is how you put up with people. You know, in the body, God arranges some interesting characters. Have you ever noticed that? There's some people that I just say, Lord, why did you have to allow them to come? They're very difficult. I'm a teacher, you know, and I teach middle school, and sometimes, you know, you get this one kid who just knows how to just get, get you. And you go, Lord, it'd be better if this person wasn't here. That's what you say in your mind. I, I mean, I don't say it out loud, but I say, you know, I'm like, Lord, it would be better. I mean, I pray sometimes, Lord, remove this man, remove it. And God says, no, you need to learn something. You know, there's something about us that is naturally selfish, and Christ says, no, what I'm producing in you requires an unconditional supply. In other words, there's some people that you can't love because they don't, they're not lovable. Right? I mean, even me, you know, we can be unlovable. But God says, I'm going to put you together. And what you're going to do is, there's a constant practice, he says, of bearing and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint with anyone. It seems as if there's going to be complaints. Legitimate times when you could say, I have a valid complaint. I want to make it right now, and it's, it's, so, it's so and so. No, and Jesus says, forgive. It's, now, this is a different word. It says forgive graciously. It's literally graciously forgive each other. It's the same uh, word that's used in Luke 7.42 when there were two debtors. Each of them couldn't pay their debts. They were, to, they were required, Jesus says, and actually, the, the, the man who forgave them both, literally it says, frankly forgave or graciously forgave them. In other words, the forgiveness is not rooted in the, in the deservedness of the one who should be forgiven, but it's rooted in God's requirement for his body. The present tense makes it plain that forgiveness is to be unceasing. Even unwearying, wearying, if you could say that. But it's interesting, Jesus says, Peter says, how many times am I to forgive this so-and-so who sins against me? What did Jesus say? And Peter was real proud. He said, seven times? Man, I'd be really spiritual if I could forgive him seven times, right? Jesus says, 70 times seven. Now think, put that into your equation here. How is it possible for you to deal with somebody day after day who keeps offending you, just obnoxious, and, and yet God says 70 times 7 is the only standard that comes when you're clothed with Christ? 
Who was it that prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Who was it that did not revile when he was reviled? Who was it that though spit upon, cursed, was bearing the sins of the very ones who said, crucify him? That's Jesus. That's Christ. And forgiveness is not rooted in the deservedness that the other person has. It's rooted in the infinite supply that Christ bore at the cross. It's the cross that allows you to release you, to free you, to forgive. And you know, if you don't have forgiveness, it's very easy to write people off. Especially when you're in a small cluster of people. Because you can't go anywhere without them. Sometimes there's this one lady in our Bible study who uh, has a tendency to be very difficult. And God has placed her in our body, and she's getting to the part where she's frail. She, can't even, she needs to go into a convalescent home. She's placed there for us not to just write her off. Now Christ says, now showcase your love. What are you going to do to this very difficult woman who's not interrupting anymore? He's not interrupting your Bible study. Christ says, go to her. Don't let her be forgotten. The ground and motivation for this kind of love is Christ's treatment. Notice, very clearly it says... Just as the Lord forgave you. How did the Lord forgive you? As so. Because Christ has forgiven us, it's a, we ought to forgive un, uh, uh, the others. You see, in, in, in Ephesians 4, it says, God in Christ has forgiven us. You see, the basis for forgiveness is Christ's mighty work of reconciliation. But then verse 14 is interesting because I'm, I'm thinking he's done talking about love, but he says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. But here it's introduced with a preposition that could mean in addition to all these things, put on love. Well, it, wasn't love part of compassion? Wasn't love part of forgiving? Evidently, here the idea is that what follows is the chief or best Above all, on top of all the other articles of clothing, he says, put on love. Love is the motive power of faith, according to Galatians. It is the supreme Christian grace. In other words, above all, in addition, love is to be the dominant mark. Isn't that what Paul dealt with in Corinthians? They were all enamored with their spiritual gifts and tongues. And he says, but there's a greater thing. There's a something more excellent. In 1 Corinthians 13, most of you may have memorized this is the love chapter, but so often, you know, like when in marriage counseling, they say, okay, let's measure your love rating. You know, how, how do you do with your love? And you say, I'm doing eight. I'm, I'm, I'm an eight with my wife. And then she says, and then what do you think? How's he doing? And he, he's a three. And you go, what? I thought I was doing an eight. You see, we think that we are loving. And, and then God has to say, no, what's the standard? You, you, you're leveling and you're evaluating the way you love sort of, I open the door for my wife, I do this and that. Yeah, but do you sacrificially lay your life down for others? 
Sometimes we say, I'm doing it. I'm doing okay. You see, you're living on this sort of self-evaluation and Christ comes. You know, when you're walking with Christ and you're yoked to Christ, beware. Sometimes he's going to say, what about this area? Uh, Christ, you see, you've got this area, you've got this area, you've got this area. And Christ says, but what about this area? Uh, 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 Lord, you know my heart is is given to you and I'm given to this and this and that. And God said, but what about this? Are Are you willing to follow me in this? I was teaching through this in our Bible study, and there was a couple that ended up having to, they were out of their rent. They couldn't get a rent. And the Lord said, what about your shed? What about your house? So we said, okay, why don't you come and live with us? Because I was thinking there's going to be problems, you know, it may be forever. And so they lived with us for a month, two months. We kept saying, we'll give you a timeline. You could live this certain time. And here I am teaching what it means to put this into practice, to make this the priority. And my wife and I came to the point where we both looked at each other, and I told her, I said, you know, honey, do we really need this house right now? Our kids are older. They're seasoned. Maybe they could leave. I mean, actually, they are, le- <laughs> they are leaving. Um, my daughter over here is in Canada. I'm saying, honey, we just have Minka. Minka does not need a bedroom. These ki- they have three kids. They're in a position where they can't rent because of this and that. What if we gave them sort of a year, and we worked, and why don't we go to the apartment? They can't find an apartment. They don't have the credit ratings to get an apartment. Why don't we try it? And so she was, and and we basically had to prayerfully say, Lord, is this what you want? We had to say, is this something that is mine? You know, we think we live in the same house for 25 years. Our kids grew up in this area, and we we hold on to that and say, this is is where we're going to retire. And God says, "When, when I bought you, Did it come with conditions? Are you going to love and display my my love the way I direct you? Are you going to do it according to your plans? So Christ just sort of slowly took our fists off of things that we held on to. And when doing that, we were released to say, Lord, be glorified. And Christ does that. We're not here forever. You see, that's what it means to set your minds on things above. We're not here forever. So Christ is going to put you in places where it may be that that's the very thing that Christ wants to do to display something about him. It's his fullness. You don't just teach people that you need to love and give up your self-centered orientation Christ will sometimes say, what about you? What's holding yourself? What are you wrapped up around? What is something that you can't let go of? And Jesus, gently, gently. I I know he does this because he's very loving. He teaches us to let go of those things. Not that we would get the glory, but that Christ would be the glory. But what's amazing if you look at Colossians, is that this love that Christ wants us to put on display is the bond of perfection. Let me repeat. You can go to superglue. You can go find any other bond. But there's something that Christ has designed that will eliminate, you could say, the things that are destroying the church. What is going to attack the church is schism, division, self-orientated. What color is the wall going to be? What color should the carpet be? And Jesus comes in and says, when my love is first and foremost, it's the bond of perfection. That's like saying, 
It's designed by God to be the unity builder. You know, you say, what about unity? Why is it that there's no unity in the family? Why is there no unity in the, the church? Well, Christ is one head and his church is one body. So you ask the question, where does the split come? I'll tell you where. It comes when you're not obeying Christ to love. Sacrificially lay down your life, your preferences. In Philippians, it says, put the other, put, take your own concerns, and he says, put the interests of others above your own. So, to, to, so Colossians is saying, first and foremost, the peace of Christ is to be the pulse of this church. But notice, he moves right into the peace of Christ. But verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Now here's an interesting word. It says, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. You'd say, well, if the love of Christ is being exercised, isn't the peace of Christ? Isn't that the, happening? Well, here it's a very interesting construction. It's a, the word rule is actually the word that's used um, with an umpire. An umpire has to make um, sort of regulations to control the game, like in baseball. Here it's saying there's something to be a regulator. When the heart is regulated by this, it will then be, it says literally, that which indeed you were called to one body. In other words, the unity that he talked about earlier is reinforced when the peace of Christ, the peace of Christ rules our hearts. So what is this peace of Christ? Well, in, in Colossians, the peace of Christ is that which breaks down the walls, particularly the wall against you and God. Reconciliation is one of the best words because when enemies can't get along, reconciliation means you have been united. All over the Bible, it talks about God's peace. Here, though, it's about the peace of Christ. It is to hold sway in our lives as you relate to one another. Notice it's a one another reference. In other words, there's something about the peace of Christ that is to regulate your relationships. It's interesting in Ephesians 2, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. When Christ came, what he did on the cross was he took away distinctions that we often make when we begin to relate to one another. And of course, in the days of Colossae, the Jews and the Gentiles had a hard time relating. Well, the basis or accomplishment of the peace, of the Christ's peace, is based on the fact that through the cross, he basically puts us all in one category. We're saved by his mercy. You see, this is staggering to think. The only difference between us and maybe somebody in the gutter, the only thing that you could say is different is that there was, God has showed you great mercy. But for the grace of God, there we will be. But some people don't believe that. Somehow they think that when they look down at other people or they, they see other people, that they have, they've been put in a category of, 
I guess you could say, deservedness. Well, the peace of Christ never comes because you earned it. It only came at the cost that Christ came. And what happened is you were justified when you acknowledged that you had no right to this. Suddenly, the peace of Christ, the basis of peace in your life and in the church is what Christ did to take away the barrier between you and God. In other words, Christ didn't bring you to God because you were doing such a stellar job. He brought you to Christ. I mean, he brought you to God, his Father, because of his love. That's it. That's it. So how is Christ's peace to rule? It says, that which you were called into one body. You see, how were you called? You were not saved to be a lone ranger. Notice how he, he emphasizes this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. How you were called, folks, is the moment you were saved, you were brought into Christ and you became members of his body whether you liked it or not. That's why you can sit next to somebody who comes from a totally different background, totally different culture, and you can have instant fellowship because Christ is Lord of both of your hearts. You know, if you think of your dream as, man, it would be the best thing if I could just retire in the high Sierras, get a cabin, you know, go down maybe once a month to go to the, you know, the store and grab some groceries. I wonder, if that's your dream, retirement in some isolated cabin, I wonder where your heart is because Christ's heart is lined up with his body. You know, a lot of people have ways to isolate themselves. But when Christ gets a hold of you, you delight to love Christ. In the moment you love Christ, he says, love my sheep. You don't do it because you're doing it to fulfill a checklist. Your heart is united as members of a single body. Christ is the head. He's the one who gives peace, and he's the one who sustains peace. So unity is a byproduct of the peace of Christ. And notice he says, and then be thankful. And just as, you know, sometimes you read that and you go, oh, and that's, and by the way, be thankful. Like, that's, a, that's an option. You know, if you get a chance, why don't you be thankful? <laughs> Look at how emphatic it is. He says, and be thankful and let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed in the name of Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is not the side issue. This is the end for which you were created. Your love, the love of Christ pulses you could say, as the reflection of Christ's unconditional love. The peace of Christ is the umpire. He won't allow you to cut off relationships. But it's the word of Christ that directs your heart to thanksgiving. You know, you go, and a lot of people will say, oh, I'm thankful. You know, I saved grace around my dinner. That's not what he's talking about. Notice, be thankful is an imperative that emphasizes a constant attitude. It's the exact opposite of Romans 1, where unbelievers, 
They were destitute of thanksgiving. They had no thanksgiving, and they exchanged the glory of God for something that was created because they didn't know the grace of God. You can't be thankful for what you've not experienced. Somebody says, man, you have to have a habit burger. It's amazing. And then you take a bite, and you don't have to like, oh, i got to be thankful. No, it's just, the, it's just the glory of that burger that makes you thankful. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. You know, you look at all the, you know, a heart of grumbling and complaining is what produced um, the, um, the Israelites would be wandering in the desert for 40 years. You go, what was their root sin? Ingratitude. Ingratitude says to God that things would be better if I had my way. Thankfulness begins with humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. And then it says, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. You give thanks. Not when you get the check of $1,000 and you go, wow. You give thanks when there's no check because it's going to be God's way to allow him to display his fullness. You give thanks when you have to live in that place of need. When you don't know if that job is going to last. When you find that relationship broken and there's no way you can mend it and God says give thanks because I'm doing a work that you cannot see you know when Elijah was about to give up from his ministry he had just done this powerful Baal display of fireworks on Mount Carmel but the next day Jezebel has a warrant for his arrest and guess what he says take my life I'm done it's over Elijah had waited three years and prayed for the drought, and then that God, God had basically, he had waited that long for God to do this. But Elijah still had a little pocket where he had his own agenda of how things should work. He was God. He was playing God, and God had to take him up to the mountain, stick him into the, to the backside of the mountain, and showcase his glory. And it wasn't in the big earthquake and it wasn't in the big fire and the wind. It was in a still, small voice where God says, I have 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. It's the unseen work of God and the smallest things that bring you to the place where you can thank him for your present condition. It's the place of faith. It's the place where all of Christ's People can give thanks. And notice, he gathers to give thanks as a body. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. You see, Christ directs the body to, to, to faith. It's a life of faith where you're living by the promises of his word, by the obedience to his commands. And when things you can't see happening and you don't even know if God's even doing anything and you don't know where the next supply is coming, you give thanks together as a corporate body and you honor the Christ who put you here. It's amazing. There is a link between psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and teaching and admonishing. Sometimes we think of teaching and admonishing as don't do this and do this. But when Christ teaches his church, it comes with music. It comes in worship. Even the songs are to be the display of Christ's reign and rule. Because every time you sing in the spirit with your body, you are affirming 
Christ is in control. He's not going to let us go. He will save and he will be the glory. We're going to give him the praise even when we see little fruit. Why? It says it because of the thankfulness in your hearts to God. If he did it to you, if he saved you, he can do it to anyone. With thanksgiving in your heart to God. So this is the Colossian. You could call it priority. It's not trying to come up with a list of things that you could do to say, we're going to do this, 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 this year. It's very simple. It's saying, I'm going to line myself up with Christ's priorities. Where is it that my Christ's love needs to be shown more? You see, it's not about adding another program. It's saying, where is it that I have been holding back and maybe even reserving myself to holding on to a relationship that's about to break. Drop everything at the altar. You go and deal with that relationship. Because you see, part of the fullness of Christ is to display his love, the peace that you could say was bought by the crosswork of Christ, and then that thanksgiving would be the fragrant aroma of worship. So let the... Word of Christ direct the vital worship of this church. Worship is all of you and all of life. Notice it's corporate, together, one another. And whatever you do, that's still plural. Whatever you do, you, it's not single. We, we love to put on our individual glasses here. But this is a church. He's saying whatever you do as a church, whether you do it in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that great that you are not your own? You know, when Christ puts you as a church, you're to do it all, all under his name. What does that mean to be under the name of Jesus Christ? Some of you know what that means because you gave your life to him. You see, when you get baptized, you lose your name. You say, I'm taking on the name of Christ. I'm gonna, he's going to be the one who's going to, I'm going to be yoked to Christ. That's what it means to be under the name of Christ. And as a church, you're to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's under his authority and reputation. You see, his name is the pulse of your heart. It's his name that's at stake. You're to do nothing apart from his direction, his approval. His purposes, to live in accord with his name, is, to, is to, to live in harmony, to be in tune with his heart. Angela was playing the violin yesterday. We were trying to play Keith Green, um, There's a Redeemer. And there was a moment when he actually got tuned up to the piano. It was a glorious moment. It was like, you know, he was practicing. He hadn't played for over 20 years. And there was a moment where it was actually working. And suddenly, Glory. And, you know, it's, it's, that's the way it is. A church that's not tuned up. Listen, where are you going to get tuned up? To, the, to this guy? To this neighbor? No, no, no. You're to be tuned up to Christ. His love is the measure. His peace is the rule. And his word is the direct focus of how you are to live. And to give thanks is the pulse, or the, you could say the life breath of his church. Are you living in Christ? Are you doing that? You know... 
I have a tendency to think and measure my success and my value or significance by how many things I do. It's a curse. It's a, I don't know if it's a read thing, but I just, I got to do this job now. I got this thing. I'm going to be teaching this course. And Christ has been teaching me, you know, every relationship that you have is the measuring rod of whether Christ is ruling. Put on a heart of compassion in your classroom. Put on a heart of long-suffering with your son. Put on a heart of gentleness and kindness to the stubborn one who will not give in. We need his supply. Jesus says, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Listen, fruit comes when you are abiding in Christ's love. That's the place. Jesus says, Unless I die and I get buried, listen, unless Jesus said this to his disciples the night he was going to the cross, he says, unless like a seed I get buried in the ground, I will bear no fruit. And it's the same with your life. You can't bear fruit if you're holding on to yourself. Put on a heart, compassion. Oh, you dearly beloved, you've been chosen by God. And the word that God tells you, he says, you're holy and beloved. That's the same words he called his son. God himself is saying, holy and beloved ones, put on my heart, my son's heart. Display his, my son to the fullness. You can't go wrong. But if you don't know him, if you don't know Jesus, he is infinite fullness who came in a body for you. He took infinite fullness of deity and it says he laid it aside and he wore the servant's garment. Not even a servant's garment. He took a criminal spot and he bore the shame. He bore it all so that you can be set free from a life in bondage to yourself. That's the gospel that Christ will free you from a life that's going in your direction. And when he saves you, he says, come in my direction. Are you going in Christ's direction? Or are you setting your life and goals on your direction? Colossians says, Christ is enough. Father, we thank you that you are able to take our hearts and move us from a self-grasping you, you, you pry our fingers off of things that we want and love, and yet you teach us how to live according to your priorities. Lord, I pray this church would be more fruitful this year as they abide in you. Lord, may they learn to walk in love, and may the peace of Christ rule in their hearts as you call them into one body, and may the word of Christ direct them into thanksgiving in all that they do, whether in word and deed. Through Jesus we ask in Jesus' name, amen.